Tom Simon, thank you so much for being on Thinking Bigger with Kevin Feely. Thanks so much for having me on, Kevin. Yeah, you, you flew out here. I flew to Atlanta. We met halfway pretty much. It's and, an honor. Uh, yeah, this yeah. is great to get to see Atlanta. Yeah, absolutely. So, Tom, uh, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your background and what you did for work and what you're doing now? Sure. I was an FBI special agent for 26 years uh, serving the FBI in <coughs> Chicago, Honolulu, and then Jacksonville, Florida. Honolulu. I got Yeah, I tell you, we can talk about that later. I, I, I got old and retired in 2021 and opened up my own private investigative firm called Simon Investigations, uh, licensed in Florida and several other states. And most of my clients right now, I'm doing financial crime investigations for clients, which is pretty much what I did for the FBI as well. Yeah. And what led you, I mean, was it you wanted to make more money or you were just done with the... I got old, man. I did it for 26 years. So with the FBI, what happens is once you have 20 years in and you hit age 50, you're eligible to retire. But then they march you out the door when you hit age 57. And so every agent out there has to make a decision during that seven-year window of time about what's the right time for them. And I wanted to be a private investigator and help clients in utilizing the skills I learned as an FBI agent. And I thought I'm going to be way more marketable and just have kind of more energy to punch my own ticket at age 51, which is what I was when I retired, right? versus waiting till I'm a broken down 57-year-old guy. Well, you look great for post-51. So, well, yeah. I appreciate it. You look great too, Kevin. Well, I'm only 31. So <laughs> um, so what was it like? So you went to school for accounting, right? You went yeah, to Clemson? I, exactly. And I, and I would say that I went to school for accounting, not because I had some like passion for debits and credits, but because yeah. when I was in high school, I met an FBI agent and asked him what, and I wanted to be an FBI agent. That was, I wanted to do that since I was a very young kid. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, what should I major in, in school? And he said, well, at the time, and still to an extent now, the best majors are law or accounting. And I hated school. And so yeah. I said, what's, what's, what, what's entailed with that? And he said, well, you know, accounting's a four-year degree. Law, you got to get a four-year degree and then go to law school for three extra years. And he yeah. said, well, I, I'm smart enough to know that four is less than seven. So <laughs> I majored in accounting. Yeah. You know, when I look at some of the most successful entrepreneurs, like people that don't work for somebody else, but have built really successful businesses, attorneys, people who are licensed attorneys that don't really practice and CPAs, people with a CPA background. Yeah. Um, I think you really learn about the structure a lot, but w what do you think it is that like, why are those types more successful than people that maybe went to school for like, you know, something else. Well, I think learning how money flows in and out of an organization makes a lot of sense and kind of recalibrating your mind to stop thinking in terms of the cash flow and start thinking of ter in terms of how you are earning that money over time is sort of a, a basic tenet of being a um, CPA. And the when, when you're actually working as a CPA, which I did for three years, it's, you're functioning as a consultant, right? You're going into many different businesses as an auditor, which is what I was with a firm called KPMG. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing how those businesses operate. And you're seeing you know, the money just falling out the door because they can't control expenses or or the fact that they're not collecting on their accounts receivable. And so you're kind of, it's sort of, it's like a boot camp business school where you're working really hard, but you're seeing these businesses from the inside on how what succeeds and what fails. So right. It kind of makes sense that you're seeing people who have that background be successful running their own businesses as well. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, I mean, a business is all about money flowing in and out. So if yeah. that's not, you know. And the FBI sees it the same way, right? That's why they hire guys like me, one, to do the financial crimes, but two, the money flowing in and out of, you know, IBM or Microsoft is very... It, 
flows in and out in the same ways that it flows out of a drug cartel or the mm -hmm. mafia or a, or a terrorist organization. And so having CPAs who could follow the money and understand that flow of money just makes a lot of sense for the Bureau. Yeah, and sometimes those guys have accountants too. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, well, yeah, everybody needs to figure out how much they're making, right? Yeah. So what was your childhood like? You said you, you kind of from high school on wanted to be an FBI agent, but was this like a lifelong thing? And, and how did you grow up? I grew up in uh, suburban Chicago, and uh, I was a kind of a bookish kid, liked comic books and action novels and stuff like that. You know, I, I, I wasn't a remarkable athlete or anything like that. Went to Catholic school. And, um, and I think the fiction, more than anything else, the movies I watched, the comic books I read, and the books I enjoyed, it formed the idea that I want to have an, a life that, one, is kind of meaningful, and two, is filled with action. Right. And, uh, and so the FBI just kind of made sense to me. Now, I thought I would be doing a lot more, you know, jumping off moving trains yeah. than, than the career actually turned out to be. But the career was incredibly um, rewarding in different ways. What were some of the things that you really loved about it? And did it end up being action packed? I mean, was there a lot of action or? Um, again, my world was financial crimes, right? So it's not, a, I mean, I, I, I've arrested hundreds of people, been on hundreds of search warrants, uh, done lots of surveillances, you know, but but the amount of like fighting and shooting that you actually do, any yeah. FBI agent, no matter what squad you're on, yeah. is remarkably small compared to what Hollywood would lead you to believe. Right, of course. I mean, but the amount of brain power you're using to actually solve these crimes, gather the evidence, and kind of build that case from the ground up, there's something that was just quite addictive to me as far as doing that to kind of create that narrative of the case. Got it. Yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, there's a physical aspect to it, but there's a lot of mental chess going on, right? And the mental chess was really where it was at for me, right? Mm. I wasn't a SWAT team guy. I'm not a huge, great marksman or anything like that. Yeah. So, so I always kind of gravitated more to the interview and interrogation stuff, which Got is it. more interesting to me, the behavioral science aspect of the thing. Yeah. I think that stuff is very interesting too. Now, I mean, I know you, that you said you're not a marksman, but did you like the tactical stuff of it? I liked it because it was foreign to me, right? I did, I w a lot of the agents were coming out of the military or coming out of police forces. I was coming out of a CPA firm, so I knew none of that. I right. never handcuffed anybody. Yeah. I, you know, I'd been in very few fights or anything like that. And so the idea of being able to kind of learn these skills at Quantico, which is where the FBI Academy is, yeah. was it really opened my eyes to kind of a whole different skill set. So what was the academy like at Quantico? What 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 kind of transformation? And is it paramilitary? Yeah, I would say it's kind of a mixture between law school and boot camp, right? Mm. So you're in class all day learning constitutional law and investigative techniques. And, and then you go out to the firing range to learn how to shoot a variety of different guns. And then you go to the gym to learn how to fight in various ways. And so and then you go to the dorms and just kind of collapse and fall asleep because yeah. right? you're living there. Right. For, uh, when I went through it was 16 weeks. Now it's 20 weeks. And why is it longer now? Just more... 9-11 changed everything. I think the FBI management felt that the training at the FBI Academy, kind of basic training for agents, was a little light on the national security stuff and a little heavy on the criminal stuff. 9-11 mm. happens. It's important to understand how to do intelligence investigations rather than just build a criminal case. And so they extended the Academy by several weeks right okay yeah that makes sense so yeah. you went what year did you go through the academy 95 okay wow yeah so you saw a lot of changes happen in your first 10 years of your career yeah it turned i mean we can talk about it but the 9-11 attacks turned the, my career around turned everybody's career around i mean we were right. basically big city police detectives who had to become a national security intelligence agency wow so what was that like post 9-11 i mean where were you on 9-11 I was in Chicago. 
and uh, I was working on a bank fraud squad at the time, investigating people who ripped off banks without a gun. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember sitting there that day, and I was waiting for my friend Chris to get in because we were going to go out and, and confront a subject in one of my cases, uh, a long forgotten case. I don't remember what it was. Yeah. And uh, and Chris called me and said, "Hey, I'm going to be a little late, but man, have you are you watching the news?" I said, what do you mean? He goes, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center in New York. And I was thinking like a little Cessna or something like right. that. And I was like, you, and, uh, and I asked him, he goes, no, 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 I think it's like a big jet. And I go, get out of here. So I go running down the hallway to the conference room where we had a TV. And this is largely pre-internet, <clears throat> you know, 2001. And, um, and you know, I start calling my squad mates in. I'm like, you guys got to watch this. And we're, and we're watching this. We just see this gaping hole in the World Trade Center. And then as we're watching live, the second plane flew into the second tower right. and an agent on my squad named Brian, who was smarter than I am, an older guy. He said, guys, we're going to, we're all terrorism agents today. This is going to change everything. And he's yeah. right. It right. did. Wow. That's what I was going to ask. So, I mean, was it all hands on deck? Yeah. I mean, that's what, you know, I've heard from uh, other people that were in, you know, intelligence spaces and things like that, even if it wasn't their kind of thing. And like for you, you're, you're dealing with numbers and financial crimes and all of a sudden, bam, terrorism hits. Did they put you in some kind of uh, financial role in that, trying to find out who financed this, trying to find out that kind of thing, or was it straight counterterrorism? Yeah, in the immediate aftermath, like the the day of, it's they set up a command post and you begin running down the leads. Uh, Chicago, where I was, was where is where United Airlines was um, based, and, and the, a couple of the flights were United flights. And so we were busy going through the the flight manifest, find out who did it, who was on board. Like every single person on board, you know, run a background check on them. Let's find out who they are. And then we started seeing commonalities with some of the uh, the Arab names on there. You know, that these are people who had been, you know, intelli- intelligence now tells us that they had been you know, trained in Afghanistan. And we began kind of connecting the dots with that. Right. But we're also running down leads because, again, I'm, I'm working in the shadow of the Sears Tower. And it was a scary time, Kevin, because nobody knew what was going to happen next. Ne- right? Yeah. Right, I, like you hear, you're watching these two planes fly, and then you hear the Pentagon. A plane flew into that, and then there's a plane that got forced down in Pennsylvania, and so we thought maybe we, this was the front end of just a series of attacks that was going to last for months. Turned out it was that day, and so you were out there knocking on doors and covering leads that had to do with the terrorist attack itself, but also leads that were coming in from the public, right? Much of which were absolute horseshit, right? We'd get calls from people saying, "Hey, my neighbor's real." shady and yeah. uh, and you know just gets the muslim or whatever and you, yeah. you go and you talk to the muslim family and they couldn't be more nice and patriotic and and, yeah. and absolutely shocked by what happened and yeah. so but we still ran all those leads down and so that that lasted weeks and then i got pulled from my bank fraud squad and put on to a counterterrorism squad which was a terrorism financing squad to try oh, to stop, stop the money from flowing to al-qaeda and other terrorist organizations right yeah so do you from your perspective do you think that 9-11 was a an intelligence failure? Absolutely. Without question uh, that, <clears throat> that the FBI and the CIA um, were not sharing information very well. And uh, they were stovepiping information within their agencies. There was, um, you know, there were eight, there were, there was word, there was information out there about these, these guys who were going to flight school and had very little interest in learning how to land the plane. Mm-hmm. And uh, the FBI just did a very poor job of connecting the dots as did the CIA. And so that's why the reforms that have taken place over the past 20-something years have been so important to making sure that Americans and the world is kept safe through better communications among the agencies. Yeah, well, I mean, and also when when you look at surveillance now versus pre-2001, 
you know, I mean, with the NSA and everything we've learned through Snowden and things like that, mm -hmm. there's nothing that's hidden if it's near a phone, right? Like, would you would you agree or? Yeah, I mean, I, I think particularly when it comes to international stuff, I, I don't have a great visibility into what the NSA does on a day to day basis. Yeah. You know, the Snowden revelations were a revelation to me as well. Of course. And so the um, but yeah, I think we you know, we pretty much have things covered. The one thing that still keeps, you know, the FBI agents awake at night is the idea of a lone wolf attacker, right? Mm -hmm. Some guy who was inspired by watching ISIS videos on YouTube who decides he's going to do just a mass casualty event. That's happened, right? Yep. And, uh, and But as soon as you get several people who are kind of chit-chatting and kind of making plans, um, you hope that the human intelligence, the informants we have out in the community, yeah. combined with the, uh, the electronic intelligence of, of monitoring calls to, you know, overseas might produce enough intelligence where we could prevent those attacks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a, a crazy dystopian world we live in now uh, with all the technology and everything. But so looking at what's happening with the border and what's popular in the news and people coming out from the FBI and people in politics saying that we're vulnerable for another 9-11 style attack, right? An intelligence failure. We've, we're tied up with Israel. We're tied up with Ukraine. We're tied up with Taiwan. Do you think that we're vulnerable from your perspective? And again, guys, he's not speaking from the point of view of anything related to the FBI. Anything that he's saying is his own opinion, nothing related to the government. I'm sure you want to make that a disclaimer. Yeah, I don't, I don't speak okay. for the FBI anymore. Yeah. I, I work for myself. Yeah, so I just want to make this clear. Anything that he's saying is not the FBI saying it, even though the clips may look like that. It is him saying it. So I just want to make that clear. But do you think that there's some kind of, do you think we're vulnerable for something like that? I think not having good intelligence about the people entering our nation is a is a danger, whether it's a danger because it's going to increase crime, whether it's a danger because it's going to create an economic problem, or whether it's a danger from a national security perspective. Not for me to say. I can't see the future. But the idea that there are people from many different countries pouring into the U.S. who have not been fully accounted for should scare every American. Yeah, and it's not just like they're coming from Honduras or Mexico or, you know. Um, I got a call from a client the other day, an attorney uh, who represents several people from the Ukraine and Russia who were picked up coming across the border from Mexico. Mm -hmm. they, they're seeing this as a means by which to get into our country. And these guys happen to be like picked up and she was looking for help and I declined her because it's not what I do. But it was... Um, but it was a, uh, you know, it was an eye opener for me, right? Because it's difficult to know in this politically charged world right now, yeah. the news and the stuff you see on social media is this right wing propaganda, is this left wing propaganda, or is this something that's actually happening? Right. And from that call and some of the things I've seen, it appears that this is something that's actually happening. These aren't just Guatemalans and Mexicans coming across the border so they could work in the bean fields or whatever. Right. These are people from all over the world who are coming into the U.S. because they see a vulnerable entryway. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just, uh, I always wonder, you know, it's like you wish you can have that hindsight uh, before something happens, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's going to have ramifications to us. It already is when it comes to, you know, housing and, and kind of social services. The question then is, is this, are we putting ourselves, you know, vulnerable for more street crime, for more, which I think we've seen a bit of, and, uh, and for a potential attack? Again, I just don't know. I'm, I'm, I've been out of the game for a couple of years. Yeah, well, I don't think we need to be worried about people coming in from out of the country for street crime. It's already happening. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, I, I, yeah. So you were on Matthew Cox's show. Yeah. Um, that I thought was very interesting. I watched the first half of it, and I thought it was interesting because you're an FBI agent that 
you know, studied financial crimes, right? Yeah. That was your whole gig. He was on the other side of the table being investigated by the FBI and all of that. So ended up going to prison for mortgage fraud, mm -hmm. I think. So what was that like from your perspective, sitting across from the table with somebody who, uh, it's just probably not something you thought would happen back That's in That's why I accepted the invitation. I thought it would just be such an interesting conversation to talk to, a, to have a former FBI agent whose specialty is, you know, white collar crime and a former white collar crime criminal sitting across the table having a dialogue. And I thought it was a very nice conversation. I don't have any problem with Matt or anyone else who's kind of paid their debt to society, turned their lives around and is trying to make an honest living. I don't think that any crime in, you know, where there's a sentence that's over, everybody deserves a second chance. Mm -hmm. and, and Matt's a perfect example of someone who's been reformed and someone who's doing great things right now, educating the public as a, you know, whereas he used to be a con artist. Yeah, of course. Now, do you see, do you think that people with that kind of profile type, are they sociopaths that can get through? I mean, obviously very, very charismatic, but do you see a trend in people that are committing these kind of financial crimes where they go in, they're very good at communicating with people, they're very charming, and they end up getting what they want and then getting out. And even when they get caught, like I've heard of a story where he got caught, I think their internal team at the bank was investigating him and they're getting ready to report him to the FBI. And I think he figured out a way to get them to stop and pay them back or something. I don't remember the outcome, but do you think that people that commit those kind of crimes, are they just everyday people? Or do you think there is some kind of profile type like, being a sociopath. Yeah. Or something. I think there's two types. There's the people who are just full-time con artists. And this is what they do for a living. They steal from other people by gaining their confidence, right? That's the con and con artist. Right. And so, but I'd say they're a minority. I think most of the people who commit white collar crimes are opportunists. They're mm. people who see a vulnerability, see their see an ability to make some money, and then they tell themselves lies that allow themselves to look at them look at themselves in the mirror each day and let me put it this way. No one is the villain in their own life story. Right. Right. So every embezzler, every Ponzi schemer that I ever investigated, they were able to justify and rationalize what they were doing because, you know, there's, I'm stealing the money from the teller drawer at the bank, but I'm not really stealing it. I'm just borrowing it. I need the money. And eventually when my ship comes in, when the lottery hits me, I'm going to return that money and no one will ever know. And my expertise, though, was identifying what is that thing that they rational? How do they tell themselves? What are they telling themselves to rationalize their illegal activity? I figure that out, and then I turn that on them, and I, and say, well, you know, were you stealing this money so you could go out and party and use drugs, or were you stealing this money because you had this extraordinary need for money because of the circumstances of your life, and you intended to pay it back? And so, if you're able to give them that A B choice, they're always going to choose the choice that doesn't make them look like a monster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen that in interrogation videos when police yeah. are trying to get somebody to admit and confess to a murder. They're like, listen, were you just stressed? Or did you do this because yeah. you were a toxic monster? Like, well, I was just stressed. Like, you Right, know. exactly. And so you make the conversation about their motivation and rationale rather about whether they did it or not. It's like, right. it's like assuming the sale. You know, yeah. like, we know you did it. I just want to know why you did it. Yeah. Is it because you... you wanted to really, really hurt this little girl? Or is it because things got out of hand? Right. And you made a mistake and you did something you could regret. And if you had a time machine to go back and do it very differently, that's right. And then you cop to it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's very similar to like sales and influence. And um, so let's talk about body language and your favorite part about it, which is the interrogations and the mental games. Mm -hmm. So what what is it that leads you to be able to understand when somebody is lying? Would you say that body language is like 80% of it or? No. Okay. I, I mean, there's people out there who have expertise in that. I don't. Okay. You know what? 
when I was trained in 1995, there was all sorts of horseshit they would tell us. Like, like if your eyes moved up and to the left, it meant you were looking for an answer and you were lying. But that's been tested again and again and again, and it just doesn't bear out. To me, there's no substitute for knowing the facts of the case before you walk into an interview, right? Mm. So I want to know every single thing about this case. I want to know every piece of evidence. You know, I don't want to be just catapulted into an interview without being prepared. And so for me, that preparation is there. Sure. And uh, and giving me a sense of comfort that this person actually did it. And then you could kind of take a look at their body language and set a baseline. What are mm. they like? Yeah. You know, is this person a fidgety person by nature when you're talking to them about the Super Bowl? Right. Or in, uh, in, or is this person you know, totally cool, but then when they start lying, they start fidgeting. So right. That, I believe in that kind of body language, but yeah. I don't believe in sort of the the let's watch and see if his eyes go up and to the left or down and to the right. It's, it, to me, that's just that there's no basis in reality for that. Of course. Yeah. So this must happen in your whole life. Like, I'm sure you investigated me before coming here. I'm sure you watched my ba- my body language and look for a baseline because it's natural for you to do that with everybody. Is that right? Or Yeah. I mean, you seem like a cool guy. I mean, I'm not looking to get anything from you other than have yeah. a good conversation. So I didn't really spend a whole lot of time doing a proctology exam on you. But yeah. I, I watched your show, got a feel for you, realized that you're a legitimate, uh, you know, interview and you got a great style and so that was enough to give me a sense of comfort to hop on a plane and come here to Atlanta yeah so I'm curious what kind of investigating did you do into me because if I were you I would before going somewhere I would want to know like who is this guy what's their reasoning for this I'm going to be very disappointing to you I just literally watched your clips and got a sense of comfort that your show is good I'm really between you and I Kevin I don't really care if you're a good person or a bad person we're going to spend 90 minutes together yeah I know you're very good at spending 90 minutes with somebody and making them feel comfortable and having a really stimulating conversation it kind of begins and ends with me there like I don't care how many speeding tickets you have or if you're you know I don't mean like that I mean like <coughs> like if I if I were in your position and somebody invited me maybe I'm just paranoid by nature uh you know if I was an FBI agent I would always wonder but I did see something that you said which was phenomenal you I believe it was on uh, the show that we just talked about, but you said somebody asked you, do you ever worry about people hurting you, like trying to come back? And you're like, why would they? It's such a waste of their time. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of a a Hollywood trope, right? Is that the guy is sitting in prison, like staring at my photo, just can't wait till he gets out so he could like murder me and my family. The reality of the situation is most people just want to do their time, get out and move on with their lives. There's not a whole lot of motivation to. Yeah. But as a practical matter is, I never treated anyone poorly, Kevin. Yep. As, when I was investigating people, I treated everybody with a tremendous amount of respect. I was kind to them. I was compassionate. I did everything I could to see the world through their eyes and understand the motivations for what they were doing. And I never lied to them or about them in court. I never testified falsely against somebody. They know what they did. And the reason they tell me what they did is because I'm being kind to them. I'm being compassionate. That's how I get people to confess to me. Right. It's not because I'm screaming at them. There's no good cop, bad cop bullshit. Yeah. And so for me, it's just a matter of, um, and so there's there's no real rationale. I mean, some of the criminals that I investigated sent me Christmas cards from prison. Yep. And some of them said that I was the first person who was ever kind to them and actually truly wanted to listen and understand them. And uh, I mean, I was doing it for my own selfish purposes to make the case, but that's just the way I behave with people. And so I haven't really given anyone a motivation to get out of prison and like cut my head off on the internet. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? Yeah, I read it. My dad gave it to me when I was a little kid and I read it and sort of absorbed it and feel like I've read it every 10 years of my life since then. Yeah. It's one of the most important books that I've ever read in terms Mm -hmm. of just how I communicate with people. What takeaways do you have from that book that helped you in your FBI career? Um, not making the conversation about yourself, right? Um, talking to them, be, becoming gen, 
not faking interest in people, but becoming yeah. genuinely interesting, interested in people, uh, using people's name. I think I've actually done it a couple times, Kevin, during this conversation yeah. because it's sweet. makes me feel it, really comfortable. It's, exactly. You know? It's a sweet thing for your ears to hear. Yeah. Uh, smiling and kind of being nice and friendly and kind of being a positive, upbeat person. And if you're working with a team, allowing them to take credit for the work. Um, if, you know, the FBI is really good at that when we work with local authorities to make sure that we're putting their chief of police on the stage for the press conference before our special agent in charge does. Yep. And, um, and you know, building people up, not tearing them down. I think all those things go a long way toward making people like you. And, and you don't have to fake it after a while. It just becomes your personality. Right. Yeah. I mean, everybody, like you said, nobody's the villain in their own movie. They're always the the superhero, right? Yeah. Or, or the person. Here's the example I like to use. You're in traffic. A guy cuts you off. You you're and you think, man, what a jerk that guy is. He's a, he must be a terrible person. Yep. That that guy's just a total bad guy. But you're late for work, and you cut someone off. You're not doing it because you're a bad guy. You're doing it because you're reacting to the circumstances of your life. Right. So you've granted yourself all this this charitable outlook on what you, why you did something bad. But that other guy, you're not you're not showing him any charity whatsoever. Yep. If you're willing to understand that most people aren't villains, they're just reacting to the circumstances of their lives, then I think you're going to be a lot better person, and I think you're going to be a lot better of an investigator. Mm-hmm. And then if you can get yourself into that, how what are those circumstances that drive people to do bad things, you can have a lot of success in getting people to confess to you. Sure. And then, do, so it's kind of cool because do you, do you think that you see a lot of similarities in between that little tiny habit going all the way up to like a large financial crime without question yeah exactly so you know i've had ponzi schemers who ripped off you know like millions of dollars from hundreds of people and uh you know and i always talk to them and when i do i say listen this probably didn't start out as a ponzi scheme when you did it right you thought you would be able to actually make money somehow and get these people paid in fact you did pay them but you were just had to pay but you owed them money and you had to pay them from the investments of other people as right. opposed to the the trading which you thought you'd be able to do and that was an unfortunate reality but at least you were paying them right so i could see how you could sleep at night feeling good about yourself for actually paying these people the returns you said you were uh, you were going to do and they always <laughs> agree with me and then we kind of go down the road like well you understand there's a problem with that it's what's called a ponzi scheme and they're like yeah and i go but you didn't set out to do a ponzi scheme but it just kind of turned out that way right right like, yeah and so whether that's the truth or not, it's how they see themselves. And that's key, right? And so getting into their headspace and understanding how people see themselves, you're going to have a lot of luck making people, getting people to talk to you, even when it's against their legal self-interest. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The human nature. And again, like understanding what makes people tick, I mm-hmm. think is probably the most important thing. Absolutely. It's everything. It's the yeah. whole ballgame. Right. Hmm. Do you think that people are more emotional or more logical? Emotional. Especially when there's pressure, right? Yeah, without question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I wish people were more logical and rational like you and I, but every, but most like people, <laughs> <laughs> like us, and, but I think most people are, are emotional and, um, you know, you, when someone does some, you know, a violent act, um, had a guy throw his girlfriend off a cruise ship and I had to interrogate him. And, uh, and I, the, the angle I was playing was, listen, you know, I understand you didn't get on this cruise ship with the intention of throwing your girlfriend over your balcony railing. You got on this cruise ship because you wanted to have a nice time with her. Then you guys got into a terrible fight. You were drinking and she was driving you up the wall. She was coming at you, fighting you, and she would just she wouldn't stop. She kept going and going and going. And at the time, the only thing you could do to shut her up was to kind of grab her and push her against the railing and lift her up. And she went over the railing. 
is that what happened? Because I don't think you don't seem like the kind of guy who went on this cruise to kill her so you could get the insurance money. Which was it? Was this a fight that got out of hand? And uh, and and he admitted it was a fight that got out, that got out of hand, and he ended up going to prison for that. Did he end up reverting back to it was about the insurance money, and that was like kind of a no? It was never stone. it was never about the insurance money. But okay. what I'm doing is I'm I'm trying to create a a monstrous option, and versus what probably actually happened. Right. And, and he, knowing the details of the case before helps you line that up. Absolutely, right? Because you hear from the people in the cabin next door that they were getting that there was an argument going on, and so you're able to kind of build out what probably happened, come up with a theory, but then allow him to tell you what happened and give him that out, that moral out. And so he was a guy who was reacting emotionally, right? Mm-hmm. He got and there's probably some truth to it, right? He probably got in a fight with her. He was drunk. He's a guy who probably should never, ever drink. Yeah. And you know those people, right? The nicest guy in the world. But then when he starts drinking, he's taking a swing at you. We all have some asshole friend who's like that. Sure. And, uh, you know, and then the, this fight just got out of hand and the girl going over the edge. That's deep. Emotions. You know, the guy, you know, talking to the guy, it's like you and I talking. Nicest guy in the world, very calm, intelligent. But he made this terrible, terrible mistake because he was drunk and fighting with his girlfriend. Hmm. And, so, and he reacted emotionally. Like he's he he doesn't rationalize this as something that you know he doesn't rationalize this with logic. He rationalizes his action with emotion. She drove me to do this. And same thing as in traffic when you cut people off. You got to see the world from other people's eyes. They're reacting to the circumstances of their lives. They're not villains like we see on TV and in Marvel movies. Right. Hmm. So let's talk about some of the gurus, right? There, there's a big trend in gurus getting hit by uh, FTC and things like that because they set, like you know have an investment fund or they uh, sell a course that's misleading or something like that, right? There's these big famous people on YouTube where the attention is flowing and they're grabbing people's money and they're getting in trouble. Did you deal with any of that kind of stuff, like? Uh, you know, I know you deal with Ponzi schemes yeah. and stuff like that. Most of my cases were embezzlements and investment frauds and what I call advanced fee schemes, like um, like lottery scams or, mm-hmm. um, or romance scams. I didn't deal with a whole lot of kind of mass marketing frauds. I'm trying to think if any of my subject to my investigations had a media presence. Uh, I mean, maybe. OK, yeah. There was a guy named Dan Doyle. He was out of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And uh, after Hurricane Katrina hit uh, back in 2003, 2004, um, no, 2004, 2005, um, the state of Mississippi offered fantastic financial benefits for people who wanted to invest in real estate, the tax benefits, invest in real estate in like Biloxi because mm-hmm. uh, it was destroyed and they're trying to rebuild right, right. low-income housing and stuff. And so Dan Doyle was one of these guys who had a podcast early podcast before it was video that was also a radio show and so he was one of these saturday morning financial radio shows that was syndicated throughout california a lot of Got people it. don't realize that those shows are not syndicated the way like rush limbaugh was back in the day but, yeah. but they're they're infomercials sure. dan is paying for time to put his but the whole idea was in, in, that there's tremendous opportunities to invest in real estate in mississippi and if you call Dan Doyle's office in Hawaii, he can kind of get you tied into that. And basically, you're sending money to Dan Doyle for an investment in real estate in Biloxi, Mississippi, that has tremendous tax benefits. Got he, it. He was a guru, right? He was he was a guy who people liked and respected. He was very good on the air, had a very successful podcast, mm-hmm. and he was just stealing people's money. So he wasn't investing it at all? Not a penny. He was spending it on himself and paying off his personal debts. Wow. Okay. So how does somebody like Dan Doyle 
do that? I mean, did he start with that intention? I think not. I think Dan felt that he had all this money coming in the door and he had debts to pay. And, uh, and so he began paying off his debts with the idea that he was going to take some of that money and put it into real estate. But it just never, ever happened because, um, one, it was difficult to do. It wasn't anywhere near as simple as he was presenting it. Right. But my theory on Dan, and Dan lawyered up, so I never got a chance to actually talk to him. Yeah. And then he died after we indicted him. And, um, and so my theory on Dan in the way I would have approached him had I had that opportunity to inter- interrogate him would have been that you, you, were try- you, know, you had tremendous financial pressures. And in order for you to continue your business that would have gotten everyone paid back eventually, you needed to take care of your financial pressures first. So you were taking investment money and you were kind of keeping your business alive. Right. Because if your business fails, Dan, it's nothing. Everybody loses. But if you can keep your business alive long enough to begin investing people's money, making money and getting people paid back, it, you know, it, it wouldn't have been a fraud at all. Everyone would have made money. Is right. that right, Dan? That would have mm-hmm. been my approach. Now, I don't believe what I'm saying, right? Because the fact of the matter is if someone gives you money to invest that money and you do anything other with it other than invest that money, right. you're committing a fraud, mm-hmm. right? Fraud is theft by deception. You have deceived these people to separate them from their money. And, uh, but using that kind of, but I'm positive that's how Dan rationalized his behavior, right? He was a guy who lived two miles from me, had kids, had a nice house on the water in Kailua, Hawaii. Mm. And, um, you know, this wasn't, you know, Dr. Evil. He was just a guy who saw an opportunity, made some money, and uh, and began spending it on himself rather than investing it. Hmm. How did he die? Heart attack? Liver failure. Oh, well, really? Yeah. Drinker? Don't know. Like I said, I never got an audience with him. He lawyered up as soon as I went to go try to talk to him. Mm-hmm. which is kind of game over for me as far as my ability to interrogate him. Right. And then we indict him, and then he comes in, fingerprints, photographs, doesn't talk to us, which is fine. Yeah. And then uh, during the course of the plea negotiations, he goes into the hospital and then dies. Mm. Now, do you think that when people lawyer... So I know that when somebody gets hit with a federal crime, mm-hmm. it's almost certain that if they fight it, they don't settle, they fight it, they're going to go to prison. It's like a 90%. Yeah, we crush everybody because we're not bringing the charges until, at the FBI until we can prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And the check and balance on that is not the the ethics and great investigating of the FBI. It's the prosecutors at the U.S. Attorney's Office, the right. federal prosecutors. They're not going to take it. They're not in the business of losing cases. So they yeah. want this thing tied down. Well, and they're the you. best of the best, right? They're excellent lawyers, Yeah. And uh, most of them, like, you know, serve for two or three years and then spin off and become high-priced defense attorneys, making my life miserable. Yeah. But for that window of time that we have them working for the Department of Justice as, a, as prosecutors, they're super good and super aggressive and very conservative, not in political sense, but conservative in the idea that they're not going to take a case with any holes in it whatsoever. They're going to run the agents ragged with to-do lists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's good, right? Because then you have enough. And I heard you say something where... Uh, that I really liked is when you go and arrest somebody, you're not trying to get somebody who you think is guilty. Like you want to know the facts before and you want to know they're guilty before, or at least have enough data and enough knowledge on the case to know that you're not putting away the wrong person. Right. There's exactly in, particularly in the world of financial crimes, there's very little margin for error, right? Because the the bank at this point, I've talked to the victims, I've talked to the witnesses, I've looked at the bank records, I have an understanding of the flow of money. So there's really no opportunity for me to kind of get it wrong at that Mm -hmm. point. And uh, which is why very few of my cases actually ever went to trial. Everybody just pleads guilty. Well, everything's so trackable, right? Like, especially. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, um, 
you know, there, there may be some mitigating circumstances as to why they do it or what happened with the, what they did with the money and stuff like that. But you have an understanding of that. So by the time I'm putting handcuffs on a financial criminal, um, it's game over for them. I know what the story is. There's nowhere for them to go. They can try to drag it out as long as they want through the, um, the plea negotiations and by kicking the trial into the future. But that's, that's the prosecutor's problem, not mine. Right. Okay. Interesting. So did you ever uh, work, uh, other than post 9-11, did you ever work outside of the financial crimes? Like, did you? Yeah, I did. Um, I did some political corruption cases. Okay. And, um, and there's it, political corruption. You'll be shocked to find oh. that not every elected, were... not every elected and government official is a good and honorable person. Oh, you'll okay. Be, you'll be shocked to learn That's that. That's news. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Threw me off. Yeah. So I did, I've done a couple stints on, uh, on political corruption and governmental corruption squads. And, uh, and I've been called upon to help out on various violent crimes, often as the interviewer and interrogator or just another warm body on a case with missing children or missing, you know, missing women or whatever. Right. And so I worked a lot of those cases kind of as one-offs um, because the FBI is just very collaborative and cooperative and, and they're always willing to kind of grab an agent to help out. And the, the culture of the FBI is such that we help out our colleagues a lot. Got it. Now, did you ever work alongside the CIA and other government agencies? No, I mean, when I, in the post nine eleven era, I was I, did, I was briefed by them and I provided them briefings. Yeah, because there was this huge push to share information with them because it was clear that we had done a very poor job of that before nine eleven. Yep. And um, but I was never really called upon. They they can't operate in the U.S. right, so they're not coming like out on interviews with me on cases. Right. And um, and I, my my trips overseas were pretty benign, and so I wasn't really rolling with them. The, U, the, the CIA now can't operate in the U.S., right? No. No? No. I mean, they, they can do analysis. They're like, you know, they're at Langley in uh, Virginia. Yeah. Um, but they're not allowed to do any operational work in the U.S. by charter. It Got it. It be illegal. Yeah. Mm, okay. CIA would never do anything illegal, right? Well, it, it, <laughs> I, I can't speak for them. I don't work with them. <laughs> yeah. But one thing I tell you is I just never encountered them. In yeah. The, in, in, but again, understand that most of my time was in financial crime. So they don't really care about like the, the pissant little embezzlement case that I'm working in yeah. in Florida or Hawaii. And yeah. So there's no opportunity for them to kind of rub shoulders with me there. Yeah. But, you know, you know, you, you get to know these guys, uh, you know, at, at briefings and stuff like that. I went to a CIA wedding once. Very nice people. Yeah, that's cool. So uh, was it like James Bond? <laughs> no, it was like it was like a bunch of uh, regular wedding. Yeah, it was very much a regular wedding. Yeah. You know, chicken dance and yeah. Macarena. Yeah. When I talk to people from the CIA, it seems like there's this almost like a police firefighter relationship between the two agencies, right? Where it's kind of they I don't disagree. like each other. I think I, I think that's Hollywood again. Perhaps maybe on the national security side. Yeah, uh, but but they their mission is just so different than ours. Right, uh, and so I mean they're out there gathering intelligence overseas. I mean, they are spies. Yeah. We're inside the U.S., and our job's really to be the spy catchers, to, right. to identify, monitor, and perhaps you know arrest and expel spies that are inside the U.S. That's right. what the FBI foreign counterintelligence squads do. And so there's, there's not a whole lot of overlap between what they do and what we do. I mean, if they can provide us intelligence about someone who's a bad actor overseas, who's now coming to the U.S. for a vacation, for something like that, they can hand that case off to us and we'll, we'll take the national security part of the investigation while that person's stateside. Other than that, there's not a whole lot to fight about. Sure. So let's talk about that, right? Like, how do you spot a spy? Because I think a lot of, I had a conversation with one of my friends and I said, look, a spy is not somebody that's going to look like a spy. A spy is just an intelligence gatherer, right? It could be yeah. a cleaner in a building. It could be a, a CEO at a company. It could be anybody that's gathering intelligence. But from your perspective, mm -hmm. since you've worked a little bit in counterterrorism, how do you spot a spy? 
a spy working inside the U.S. Um, ends up getting caught because of their communication patterns, because they are contacting someone from the mothership back home, whether that's China or Russia or one of the other threat nations, and that and that information is being monitored in some way. Got and it. So then we're identifying, then then the the NSA or the CIA will then notify the FBI and say, hey, that cleaning lady at the Pentagon, mm-hmm. there may be an issue with her. Yeah. And then we begin to look into her. And it becomes a, a, a very quiet proctology exam where we're, we want to know every aspect of her life and find the information that she's gathering and what she's doing it. And for the, the people who've committed actual espionage who are members of the U.S. military, it's mm. almost always that as well. Right. So what is it like to stake out somebody? You know, what, what is it like going undercover and, and, you know, watching people, surveilling people? Right. Well, undercover is a very different thing. But I think what you're talking about is surveillance. Yeah. So, I mean unmarked car watching somebody yeah. sitting in the Ford Fusion across the street. Right. It's, it's incredibly boring, right? So yeah. everybody, I talk about surveillance. It's going to do a bit of that still as a private investigator now. Yeah. And uh, and surveillances are insanely boring. And so they, and people don't understand that. They're like, oh my God, it must be so exciting. It's it's moments of excitement where the person's driving and you're following and trying not to get burned. And then it's a lot of staring at a car or staring at a front door of a house from a distance waiting for it to open while they're just having a Netflix and chill evening and you're in a car either freezing to death or burning up hungry and you got to pee. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't get out. No, I mean, some, well, usually you're on a team again, yeah. as a private investigator, I do a lot of surveillances alone, right. but when you're on a surveillance team for the FBI, there's you got several different cars and so you just take shifts as far as who's watching the door, who's watching the car or else you would just go totally stir crazy if you had to like stare at a door for eight hours. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, the human brain can't do it, right? I mean, it can do it, I guess, but... It's just asking a lot of the agent. Well, now with cameras, has that changed? Is there a lot less human surveillance and more post yeah. up a camera on a tree pole or you something? You could, yeah. You know? I mean, it's an option, but then you're, you're kind of losing your... You still need humans. Um, you know, maybe you can fall back a block or two if there's some kind of electronic surveillance going on also. Right. But then you have to have some poor bastard agent staring at their phone or at a computer screen uh, waiting for the person to get out and get in their car, and then everyone's scrambling to make sure you can choke them off when they when they leave their homes. Yeah, got it. Okay. So it doesn't solve the. It allows you to fall back, but it doesn't solve the problem of needing an actual human to watch that screen to so you know to follow, so you can start following that person once they get on the road. Got it. Okay. So how do you tell if somebody's following you? You know, if the average person thinks that, and I'm not saying like if you're being yeah. tailed by an agent, but I mean like. If somebody is following somebody home, like what are some of the things that people should look out for? If someone's uh, taking more than two or three turns with you, that should be a, a red flag. Got it. Okay. So right turn, right turn, right turn, right turn. Yeah. I mean, if someone's, if, you know, in most of the time, in fact, there's a fun experiment for your viewers. Uh, if you're listening to this while you're in your car, don't look in your rearview mirror, but ask yourself, do you know what the, what the car is that's right behind you? Mm. Most people are going to say no. Yeah. Most people just aren't paying attention to the car that's by, behind them. And the surveillance agents or stalker is um, yep. is counting on that. Is counting on the idea that you're not paying attention to what's behind you, and, uh, and it makes it easier for them to follow you. Well, and like you said, you know, most people, uh, most government agents. What's the car called that you get? What's the term for uh, it? The FBI calls them view cars. It's short car. for a bureau car. Okay, got it. Okay. So I, I left a comment that got thousands of likes or a bunch of likes on one of your videos where I said 50% chance it's a Ford Fusion. And people <laughs> seem to really like that. Yeah. I mean, my, my view cars are some real jalopies over the years. Yeah. 
So, but they blend in. That's the whole point. Is they're regular American sedans that blend yeah, in. yeah. We're not. It's not like the TVs with the FBI just driving like a Ferrari yeah. or a Lamborghini, Miami Vice. Yeah. I wish. Yeah, that'd, that'd have been great. Yeah. But what are some things that people don't know about the job, like working as an FBI agent? So for me, somebody who's obviously not affiliated with the government, what is it like from my perspective that I'm missing? You know, what are some cool things about the job that you that people don't know? Cool things about the job of an FBI agent that they don't know. I'm trying to think. When you, you get a car, you get to take it home, which is kind of a nice economic benefit, but you can't use it for anything other than work. So right. your kid, you want to drop your kid off at school, no dice. Can't yeah. use your FBI car for that. You want to put a trailer hitch on it and bring your trailer out to the, you know, your cabin in Wisconsin to go, uh, cam- you know, camping for the weekend, no dice. Can't do that. And so a, a bureau car that you get to bring home is a tremendous economic benefit, right? Because it's got paid for gas, you're not paying for insurance, and your, your commute is covered. And the reason we do that is because the agents have to be on call 24-7. You got to be able to respond if something bad should happen. Right. But it's a trap also because you get six-week suspension if you're caught misusing the car. Do people do that a lot? Um, like is it, people get busted for it. Yeah, it, it happens. Um, How would you... It's like, you're. it's the FBI. Why would you... It's it, it. Most agents don't do it because the penalty is so severe. I mean, six weeks without pay would have bankrupted me. And you still have to work. No, no, you're you're on the bricks. You, you're you know the, the, your badge and gun and credentials are in your boss's drawer while you're sitting at home waiting for the clock to run out on the six weeks. Ugh. So most agents just don't mess with that because you're playing with fire. Right. And uh, but it's happened. You, everybody knows somebody who's gotten in trouble for a, misusing a, an FBI car. But it was it's a bad <laughs> move for the agents when they do it. But you asked for something cool. What's cool? I think we're cool interesting. Just something that people don't know. It's such an open-ended question, Kevin. I, because it, for me, this is what I did every day, 10 hours a day for 26 years. So the stuff that you might find cool was just so commonplace to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other, the other end of the question would be more interesting for me is what are the things that people might think are cool that's just totally benign? And, and yeah. the paperwork, like... Every day that I'm out there doing something really interesting, whether it's a surveillance, an arrest, a search warrant, or interviewing people or interrogating someone, has about the same amount of time with me actually writing it up. Because right. if I can't if I can't create the paperwork and the case file describing exactly what I did and how I did it and what that person told me, then it's nothing. Then I'm just then it's just recess. I'm playing. Mm-hmm. Because you know, eventually all that all my paperwork needs to be turned over to the prosecutors and then needs to eventually be turned over to the defense attorney in the discovery process. And which is what induces a plea. And right. so the amount of paperwork involved with being an FBI agent is probably the same as being a big city police detective, but it's absolutely crushing. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And so because you, you have to be very right. Very and they don't show you that on a CBS when you're watching yeah. some FBI police drama, right? They, you know, it'd be an incredibly boring show to see the see Agent Simon sitting behind his computer, like, you know, writing uh, writing up a report while I'm hunting and pecking yeah. the keyboards. Yeah. And so so stuff like that. I think people would also be shocked by the um, by just the normal off the shelf technology that the FBI uses for you know when you see these FBI field offices in on TV, they look like discotheques with like you know, screens that pop up out of nowhere. Yeah, but like the Pentagon in underground, the Pentagon. Yeah, or something. yeah. But the the reality is that it's, it looks it's just a cubicle farm. And people would contact me every now and then, say, "Hey, man, can I get a tour of the FBI office in Jacksonville or Chicago?" And I said, well, you know what? Do you work in an office with a bunch of cubicles? And they go, yeah. And I go, then you've got, you've got the tour. <laughs> because it's not like we have terrorists chained to the walls or there's like a room, yeah. a room that I can show you that has the UFOs in it or anything like that. And yeah. so, so the office itself is pretty just a normal kind of 
cubicle farm. The um, but if the agents are doing their job right, they're not spending a ton of time in the office. They're right. on the streets knocking on doors. And that's how you solve cases. Right. What was circling back to when you became an agent? What was the hiring process like? I know it's very, very, as you would say, a proctology exam. Yeah, but. it was long and miserable, is what it was like. So you start by taking an intelligence test. Well, let me go through it now because there's some differences. Now you start, I guess you still start by filling out a basic application. Then you go in and take an intelligence test. Half mm -hmm. the people pass that, half the people fail that. And then those people get to have like a, a meet and greet session with an agent. The agent's really kind of at that point taking a look at your resume. And to see, are you a person who is regarded as a highly competitive candidate? So the criminal justice majors are not highly competitive. They're mm. a dime a dozen. The FBI doesn't see that as a competitive major. Right. But the accountants. But the accountants, the computer scientists, the mechanical engineers, um, the people who speak Farsi or Chinese, uh, any of the Chinese dialects or Russian, that's a highly competitive candidate. And so if the agent sort of approves your resume as being highly competitive, then you get to go to the next stage. And that's a panel interview where three people are interviewing you for about an hour uh, about the stories from your life. You know, tell me about a time in your life where you had to blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So if you pass that, about half the people pass and half the people fail. You also take a written essay exam to make sure you can read and write proper English. And, uh, and so it's, a, it's just an essay you're writing, basically. Yep. And, um, and so and there's a certain amount of people who pass that and a sizable amount of people who fail that. Along the way, periodically, you're taking a physical fitness exam where mm -hmm. you're evaluating your ability to do push-ups, sit-ups, a mile-and-a-half run, and a 300-meter sprint, okay. and uh, and you got to hit your times there. Or you else... do a dummy drag, too, or no? No, we don't do no. that. <laughs> yeah, we should, but we don't. Um, yeah. It's it's push-ups, uh, nonstop push-ups, sit-ups in a minute, uh, a mile-and-a-half run, and a 300-meter sprint, but they're back-to-back-to-back. -to -back -to -back. Yeah. And so... And a shocking amount of people don't pass that, yeah. which makes no sense to me because it's not a pop quiz. You know exactly what you're going to be tested on, but people show up and fail that more often than not. Right. And that's changed over time. I think my generation of agents uh, was passing, of applicants were passing at a way higher rate than the current generation. Well, I don't. Yeah. Look at, I mean. What do you think? Because I don't have a good explanation for that. I mean, I think people are not as fit as they were. I think people don't play outside, especially the younger kids. Like, yeah. Uh, I feel like I was like the last generation that played outside. You know, when I was younger, I'm 31. When I was younger, it was right when technology was really coming out. But I didn't have video games as a kid. We lived, we moved around a lot. But for a long time, we lived in Alaska, in very rural, mm -hmm. rural part of Alaska. And we would just go out and just play, you okay. know. I will, I will allow for that, that this is a lesser, this, this generation's not as physically fit as 25 years ago. What I don't understand is what's happening psychologically to this generation that's making people show up to a physical fitness test that they're not going to pass. Yeah. I mean, is it the instant dopamine from, from other things where doing something hard, people mentally give up sooner? Like if I want to feel good, I can watch a YouTube video, a TikTok. Go watch porn, eat some food, DoorDash, right to the house. I mean, there's a million different things that I can do right now, video games, like anything to get that instant dopamine rush. So pushing through to do something hard, even as simple as just focusing on reading a book, like people read less books, people do less mentally challenging things, I think. Yeah. I read a lot less than I used to, you know. Um, Maybe there's something to that, but there, it, it's... It's a phenomenon that I don't understand because I there's no way I would have embarrassed myself to uh, to showing up to a physical fitness test 
without one having done it myself first to know I can pass. Right. And if I couldn't pass, I would have said, listen, I'm not where I need to be. I need another month to train. But people show up to the FBI physical fitness test all the time and just fail miserably. Like like it's like they had no idea they were actually being called upon to do what was being asked. And I don't understand the psychology behind that. And I don't understand why somebody would not have, I would have run this thing in a, you know, in the allotted time on bloody stumps. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not a runner. Yeah. And so the, um, so it's just, it's a weird thing to me that during that applicants are washing out left and right at the highest rate that we've ever seen in the FBI's history mm-hmm. um, today versus some other day. And I don't understand. And I get what you're saying. And I think people are probably in poorer shape than they were in the past for all the reasons you cited. What I don't understand is the psychological hurdle people are able to get to where they think, magically that they're going to be able to pass this thing if they've never passed it before. Well, you look at it with local police departments, right? You see most of the cops are overweight mm-hmm. or obese right? and could not pass the physical test, the entrance test now if they went through. They don't train jujitsu. They don't train with their firearms. They don't train under pressure. They don't do the things that allow them to do their job under pressure when a critical incident or something like that happens, right? Like mm-hmm. their day-to-day routine is pretty not you're not running and gunning every day right right? no you're in a car writing tickets if you're a patrolman and you spend a lot of time in that car i get it which is crazy because right the the police spend a lot of time actually training their people on critical incidents on surviving a a shooting and uh, and and going through all that do they though i think they do i think they do I, i believe police training is actually fairly good when it comes to that type of thing however what the police departments i think fail to understand is that an officer is way more likely to die of the complications of type 2 diabetes, a heart attack, a stroke, than they, than they are ever in an encounter with a bad guy. Right. But they're not, they're not pushing the physical fitness training that would be needed to actually survive that. They're pushing the training you know, on how to survive a shooting incident. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, I mean, they should do both is what I'm saying. It's right. not, it's not, there's not an either or here. But I, I'm with you that the physical fitness for law enforcement is, is just so important. One as sort of a, a visible sense of comfort that the public will have when they encounter a law enforcement officer, that this is a person who seems to know what they're doing. Yeah. And uh, But two, just from an HR perspective, that it costs a lot of money to um, to retire somebody at age 45 because they've had their second heart attack. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, the average lifespan of a police officer when they retire at that full 20 years is like five to seven years. Interesting. It's crazy, you know, but, but you think about it. The reason why I bring that up is, I think that a lot of people are more emotional and less logical. Like you should, when you finish your shift or before your shift, go work out. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of departments have a gym at the department. I'm F- sure FBI does. Yeah. Yeah. So, so do you think that it's more just people are, are lazy, right? They finish, you know, I mean, I get it. Like cops are working a lot of overtime now. So you get done with a 12 hour shift. You don't want to go work out. You want to go home and sleep, you know? Do you think that's it? Or I've never been a police officer, so uh, yeah. I, I can't I can't really get inside their heads. But I know the FBI culture is one of physical fitness, and I know the FBI provides agents with a certain amount of hours per week specifically to work out, and they have state of the art gyms in every field office to get those workouts in. Right. So um, you know, and the agents are going to just perform better if they're healthier. Of and so the I think the FBI is investing in their own people, but they're also investing in their own success. Mm-hmm. Getting back to the application process. Uh, yes. So after you, you pass your physical fitness test, you pass your interview, then there's a polygraph test, and they're really just testing to make sure you told the truth on your application, that you're not a spy, and that you're yep. in, in compliance with the FBI drug policy. And if you pass that, then you go to the background check where they you know, do a 
a investigation of you and your past to make sure you're a good and honorable person. You're not a spy. You're not, you're acting financially responsible. You're not a druggie. And, um, and then if that, if you pass all that, I think you got another physical fitness screening before they send you to Quantico at the FBI Academy. And then you spend 20 weeks there and there's some amount of people that wash out of the Academy for a variety of reasons. Yeah, of course. So the polygraph, I'm curious yeah. about this. Mm -hmm. I've heard that you can't use a polygraph against somebody in court. They're not admissible. Is true. that right? That's true. Okay. So what is a polygraph more to pinpoint where somebody's baseline, like how far they are from their baseline and dive deeper in something. So for instance, you can't necessarily, from what I assume a polygraph is, you can't mm -hmm. tell if somebody's lying, but you can tell when something's off enough to know where to dive deep. So if somebody gets nervous around a financial question that's maybe around bank deposits or, or whatever, and they get their heart rate really goes up or they're, you know, they sweat a little more perspiration or, you know, whatever, right? Is mm -hmm. that, is that more where you dive in or is a polygraph? Again, I'm not a polygrapher. Yeah. So let's start there. Yeah. And, but I've had to sit for a polygraph every five years of my career, which is, yeah. which I, which, you know, even as a 50 year old guy, I was just on pins and needles nervousness because it's just an awful feeling, right? Yeah. You're hooked up to this machine. There's an agent you don't know. He's not like your friend. Yeah. Who's, who's like asking you questions yeah. and you're and measuring your reaction and you're like, Oh my God, did my heart, did I, am I breathing wrong? Overthinking I mean, you know, everything. My, you're overthinking it. You know, if you're, you grew up in Catholic school like me, everything's a, this mortal sin that's yeah. still coming to light at oh this point. Gosh. And yeah. so the Catholic the, guilt, I think a lot of the trick of the polygraphers, not the trick, the art of polygraph is the conversation that you have with the polygrapher when you're off the box. Yeah. You know, and like you said, you know, I'm seeing some reaction to you with this question about the drug policy, you know. Let's talk about that. Did you know? Were you ever at a party recently where people were using drugs? Could that be in your mind? And then you know, then they sort of probe that a little bit, and uh, and with, you spend a lot of time putting your mind at ease about the things that you're drumming up as problems, so right. they can put you back on the box and say, okay, except for what we already talked about, are you in compliance with the FBI's drug policy? Mm -hmm. And so um, they want you to pass. Uh, the FBI, you know, by the time you get to the polygraph, the FBI has invested a lot of time in the applicant. And, right. uh, and money flying them to a, you know these interviews and stuff like that. And so they're not trying to make you fail out. But if you lied on your application, they want, they need to sort that out and understand what is it, what what job have you left off your application because maybe you were fired 20 years ago and you didn't want to put that on there. Yeah. Or um, you know, or the drug policy, or maybe you have some contacts with foreign intelligence agents um, socially that you were uncomfortable mentioning that just needs to be vetted out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's you're done, right? I mean, that's an immediate. I think I think there's a conversation to be had with all of those things. Um, I feel like if somebody lies going through that process, you but must if, if you're determined, if you walk away from the polygraph at the end of the day and you have lied because you're you, you're a tough guy and you're going to like dig your heels in, but it's coming up as deceptive, you're not getting the job. Yeah. In fact, you're not getting any job in the intelligence services. Yeah. Team. Well, they've got to be able to trust you, right? In any job like that. That's the whole ball game. Yeah. So, what's the most interesting case that you've worked on? Uh, you mean of kind of global importance or which case did I enjoy the most or? Yeah. What, what, what really, I mean, sure. Of global importance. And then maybe one that you liked. I was a high volume guy, right? So I worked, I worked like hundreds and hundreds of cases that weren't particularly globally significant, right? In, you know, embezzlements, Ponzi schemes, um, you know, frauds of various kind. And so, and that's how I got good at what I did was because I'm working sheer volume, whereas the people who are working some giant important case like, you know, the 9-11 attacks, you know, that's going to take 10 years of their lives and half yeah. their career working one big case. I was I was a volume guy. So I was dealing with 20 cases at a time, um, you know, with losses between two hundred thousand dollars and 20 million dollars. 
uh, there. But occasionally cases would pop up that were of significance. After the 9-11 attacks, I was put onto a squad that was investigating um, a couple of Islamic charities that mm. were taking money from good, um, good Muslim people for their tithing called zakat. And instead of actually using that money for the poor and needy of the Muslim world, as was promised to their donors, they were funneling that money to Muslim fighting groups, including Al-Qaeda. Wow. And so our job was to dismantle those charities, take their assets, shut them down permanently to stop the flow of blood money to the terrorists, mm-hmm. and deport the guys who in, who were running the charities and, and put them in prison if we could prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Wow. That's what we did. So that was a big case. It took a few years of my life out. I was the financial nerd on the team and kind of going through the bank records, looking at the expenditures, asking the questions about, you know, why were they buying these hand warmers? And, yeah. uh, and then we would uh, compare that to the wiretaps we had um, and say, well, it's clear that they're buying these hand warmers for uh, fighters in Chechnya so their hands could be warm uh, because we have this, this recording that was recorded by an intelligence service. Wow. You know, and so just kind of piecing together the mosaic of evidence to show that they were truly defrauding their donors. Right. And so we got a lot of flack from the Muslim community saying, why are you going after our charities? Yeah. But I don't think we did a very good job of communicating to the Muslim community that that we saw them as victims, right? Because they weren't donating money for trigger pullers in Chechnya. They were donating that money for the poor and needy as part of their religious convictions. Right. So that was a significant case. Um, I investigated some politicians, uh, some um, had some... uh, corruption cases in Chicago that were fairly significant as well. Yeah. Now, do you see a big play in terms of like the financial crimes and funding of terrorism and things? Do you see a big correlation with cryptocurrency? I know that I know you've been kind of, you know, it's not really wasn't big when you were yeah. doing it as much, but I, on the financial crime side, without question. Yeah. Uh, I, the counterterrorism side, I can't really speak to the extent that cryptocurrency is being used to move money. I wouldn't right. be surprised, but on the fraud side, absolutely. Um, it's a, it is the currency of fraud. Got it. Okay. So is that why the government is kind of not a big fan of cryptocurrency? It seems like, um, I don't know that the government has a position on cryptocurrency. If the government truly wanted to shut it down, you know, Congress could pass a law and shut it down. Mm-hmm. I think crypto is garbage for a lot of different reasons. I yeah. think, um, it's a terrible investment. It's not a currency. It never will be. It's um, it, it's basically functions as a Ponzi scheme and a pump and dump scheme. Mm-hmm. And the only people who are using cryptocurrency to actually conduct transactions are people involved in ransomware and people ripping off little old ladies. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. Mm-hmm. Now, um, let's talk about money laundering. Did you work doing a lot of money laundering stuff? Yeah. Okay. So art. I know that art galleries and the the, you know, very high ticket pieces of art are often used for money laundering. Is that true? I, I haven't seen a lot of that in my experience. It may be true. Um, the idea the idea of some drug kingpin is going to put his money into a priceless Monet as opposed to a bank account yeah. seems perfectly reasonable to me, um, whether he's buying that Monet because he believes it's going to hold value um, or whether he's buying it because he thinks it looks lovely on the wall of his you know mansion in you know, Medellin. I, it's hard for me to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not, I was never a drug agent, so I don't really have a great understanding of how, um, you know, the drug operations work. Because I've never had a real interest in the war on drugs. Well, I didn't really say anything about drugs. Just in terms of people buying, like for instance, somebody will pay somebody a million dollars for a piece of art. Yeah. But it's really not worth that. But there is, you know, a way for them to get yeah. around taxes. Yeah, we and saw more like benign that. versions of that in Chicago, where the street gangs uh, selling drugs uh, on the drug level would have a, um, you know, have a hair salon 
and, mm-hmm. uh, and they would funnel money into that hair salon, creating the illusion of cash revenue to that small business. And whereas they, they weren't really cutting much hair or doing much hair at all there. But if you were to take a look at their bank account, it, it looks like, you know, they have 15, 20, 30,000 dollars coming in a day, which right. is way too much for a small south side of Chicago hair salon. Yeah, so we would see stuff like that. I never saw any like master criminals putting that money into um, into art as a means by which to hide the money. I just never saw that myself. I'm not saying it doesn't happen though. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And um, so let's talk about your private investigation uh, business. You know, what what do you do? What's your day to day like? Sure. It's called Simon Investigations. I'm licensed in Florida, but I do work throughout the country because when if I'm in a state that I'm licensed in, I can operate as a private investigator. But any other state and internationally, I can operate as a forensic accountant. Nice. And so most of the clients that I have um, are involved in have been ripped off in financial crimes. And it's either a, a small company, usually not a huge corporation. I haven't had any huge corporate clients, but a small to mid-sized company who has suffered an embezzlement, let's say, meaning an employee has stolen money from them. And they want to gain an understanding of what happened. They want to tighten up their internal controls. They bring me in to investigate it, confront the bad guy, and see if I can recover some of that money, and then package up that investigation into some very organized FBI-style reports, mm-hmm. and then present it to their board of directors because they need to cover their asses after the company's been ripped off. Yeah, and then often bring that, shepherd that to the FBI, bring it to my former colleagues there for whatever investigation they deem appropriate. Right. The other side of that would be investment fraud. Someone out there is running a Ponzi scheme or an investment fraud scheme. I'll investigate that. I'll look through the bank records. I'll gain an understanding of what happened. I'll take a look at the prospectus. I'll get a feel for the fact that this money was not being invested. I will often I'll create a report. I'll go to the bad guy. I'll tell the bad guy that it's time for him to pay my clients back. If he can't, I'm going to be taking this to my colleagues at the FBI for mm-hmm. whatever investigation they deem appropriate. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I always say, Google me. You know, Google Tom Simon FBI, and you're going to see that I'm for real. Yep. And um, and I've gotten a lot of clients' money back that way. Do people and shit themselves? I think they realize the jig is up at that point. Yeah. And that um, that some of them make the decision that the the path of least resistance to pay back my client is going to be a lot less you know, hurt in their future. Um, but there's all the problem is there's other victims out there who, yeah. who haven't hired me, and uh, and so I'm trying to get my clients' money back. And if of I can't course. get my clients' money back. I'm going to shepherd this case to the FBI, kind of present it to them in a beautiful package that the agents won't be able to resist. So then they can work the investigation, which will result in a criminal conviction, which will result in an order of restitution, Mm -hmm. forcing the bad guy to pay my client back. Either way, my client gets made whole if the, if the person has money to pay it back. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really good. And, and it's kind of cool that you've taken your whole experience as an FBI agent and then can continue working almost seamlessly. Is there is there a big transition for that? And when did you start your business? Uh, Ju- I started. I retired on May thirty first, twenty twenty one. Oh, so you just retired? I yeah. thought it was yeah. like almost ten years. Okay, I'm not that it. old, pal. Uh, no, no, no. Well, that's why I was like, <laughs> you said you retired at fifty one. Like, yeah, right? yeah I'm fifty four now. Okay, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so three years ago. Yeah. And so the um, yeah, so I retired, and then I land this huge client, this monster client, on like June first, and I was like, "This is how it's going to be. Yeah, it's, it's just going to be nonstop <laughs> clients paying me tons of money to do in these investigations." And and uh, but my first my first year, it was a lot of like stops and starts and dead periods and uh, and all that, and I was still trying to learn the marketing of private investigations. Well, you're doing great. I mean, you're you're very big on TikTok, and I mean, how many followers do you have? I got a as of this recording about. 200,000 on Instagram and about 80,000 on TikTok and then then a lot on LinkedIn. I don't LinkedIn doesn't 
Hallie in the same way as it does because you have some people who are followers, you have some people who are connections. Yeah. And uh, my my YouTube has not taken off at all, but that's fine. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the, and this is very TikTok s kind of content as well. Like it's it's that kind of mysterious. Uh, I don't know. I feel like that kind of stuff does really well on TikTok. I feel that what I'm doing really is demystifying investigations. I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm giving every day. This came about in sort of an odd way. I started out and I had no idea how I'm going to market these services, right? Because right. going door to door saying, want to buy an investigation is a recipe for failure. Right. And so I was spending a fortune buying Google ads and ads on like Nextdoor and Facebook. And, and it was giving me nothing. I was getting, I mean, the, the cases I, were, I was getting from those expenditures was just garbage. And so I thought, you know what, I have an asset. That asset is a 30 years worth of stories of investigations that I've conducted and thoughts regarding investigations and commentary and, co and, and telling the story of other FBI cases similar to the ones that I work. Right. Why don't I produce a 60 to 90 second video every day, Monday through Friday, put it up on all these social media platforms and see if it takes off and see if clients come about. And so that's what happened. And so it it's taken off beyond my wildest dreams and it's given me a, a steady stream of clients who need my help. And right. so I'm able to actually do what I love, investigating while actually helping clients and using the uh, social media stuff as a means by which to showcase what I do. Yeah, and you're really good at it. And like I said, like you 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 made me laugh earlier when I said you you have a voice for radio. Like you really sound like somebody who is just meant to do this style stuff. And you said you, you, I also have a face yeah, for radio. That's, so that's stupid. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not, I don't think I'm a typical TikToker or Instagrammer, right? That's like, what people like. It's a pattern interrupt. Yeah. Well, maybe. Yeah. I, I don't know why it's taking, I think true crime's hot now. Yes. Right. Oh, and yeah. So like, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are just fascinated by like these, these stories. A lot of the true crime stories I tell are about financial crimes. And, um, you know, but I'll also tell the, you know, the ghastly murder cases and all that. I tend to tell stories from the FBI because that's my background. And I, I think the FBI often doesn't do a great job of tooting their own horn. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, storytelling hits somebody's brain differently than other kind of content. Right. So um, the guy that I had on yesterday, we talked a lot about that. And he said storytelling has a much higher impression on the brain. Like people will remember a story much longer than they'll remember just a fact or something like that. Do you think that that's the case? I think so. I think the ability to kind of tell a story with a beginning, middle and end is an art. And um and being able to kind of take a large, complex case and, and boil it down to 90 seconds. I spend way more time kind of writing and reflecting upon how to tell these stories than I do actually recording and editing it. Got it. Okay, so there's a whole method to the madness. And I notice that you're, and again, like if you're interrogating somebody, you're taking mental notes along the way and you're coming back to things. And I've noticed in the way that we've talked, you've been able to keep a good track, obviously much better than I am on certain things, right? So there was there was one thing that you went back to that I had completely forgotten about. And that just made me realize like the way that your brain works and the way that you've done things for so long, 20, how long? 27 years? No, I guess, I mean, 95, right now, I said, yeah. coming up on 30. And Congrats. before before I was an agent, I was an investigator for a, a accounting firm called KPMG doing basically what I do now, fraud investigations for yeah. clients. So it's really, it's it, at this point, it's not that I'm, I'm just not qualified to do anything else. No mm -hmm. one's going to hire me to like lay brick or take care of their kids. I'm yeah. an investigator. It's all I've ever done since I was 23 years old. And so the idea of me doing anything else right now is pretty unthinkable. Do you love it? I do. 
I do. I mean, I, every day when I was an agent, I woke up and couldn't wait to go to work because I was going to be doing these exciting things that mattered. Right. And, uh, and the fact that I'm able to do that right now, but instead of working in the interests of justice, I'm able to work for clients and help them out. Sure. And so that means the world to me. So who's your ideal client? If somebody's watching this and maybe they've been a victim of financial crime or, you know, how do they get in touch with you and who is the right person for you and who's the wrong person? Well, let's start with how they get in touch with me because that's the easy question. They can yep. go to my website, simoninvestigations.com, or they can go to Simon Investigations, you know, at Simon Investigations on, you know, on TikTok or Instagram, and there's links in my bio as far as how to get a hold of me. And, and they're going to be in the description below. So yeah. if you're watching this, go follow him, reach out to him, go to his website, wherever you consume the most amount of content, follow him. Right. So I spend a lot of time talking to people. That's a good bit of my day is spent fielding phone calls from people who have problems. You know, I'm happy to talk to anybody for free and kind of give them my impression. A lot of people want to hire me and I have to kind of break it to them gently that they, I need to control their expectations that maybe I'm not the right guy for this particular assignment and maybe that a private investigator is not going to solve their problems. Mm -hmm. People have a misunderstanding. My favorite kind of clients are the people who have been victimized. I own a small business and there's a guy who works for me and I just found out he had been uh, using the company credit card to spend just a ton of money on himself and then he created a false vendor where he was paying himself and creating the illusion that it was an IT company that, that the company was paying. You know, I, we really need your help to one, to make sure this never happens again. And two, to kind of document and quantify this fraud. Got and it. then I'll either hop on a plane or hop in my car and drive to them and help them. Yeah. Um, when people get ripped off in, uh, in Ponzi schemes or investment fraud schemes, I'm happy to help them. Lately, I've been doing a lot of these romance scams where a someone calls me and says, my mother has, my mother's a widow. She met a guy on silversingles.com and he doesn't video chat with her and she's been sending him a ton of money. I don't think he's real. Yeah. And, uh, and I've talked to, and the guy, the son will say, I've talked to her and she insists that this is her soulmate and that I need to mind my own business and she won't listen to me. So I've been doing a lot of interventions with people right. who have senior citizens in their lives who have fallen for these romance scams because it doesn't make sense, but they're more willing to listen to an outside expert sometimes than even their own kid. Right. And then if I can find out where they're sending the money, oftentimes there's middlemen involved here in the U.S., Perhaps I can go talk to those middlemen and either shut down the flow of money to these bad guys overseas. Yeah. Or if if I catch if the timing is good, recover some of that money and get it back to the victims. Yeah, that's terrible. I cannot imagine. I I just can't imagine my mother who, you know, obviously still with my father, but yeah. I can't imagine if my mother went through that, how terrible that would be and it's how a huge problem. Yeah. I had a case if you got time for one more story. As much time as you want. Yeah. Guy uh Old man in his 90s had been ripped off in a, this was not a romance scam, but it was another advanced fee scheme, thought he won the lottery. Mm. And he'd given something like, and with the trick with a, you know, you've won the sweepstakes, you've won this lottery. All you got to do is wire this money to us to pay for the taxes and, and administrative fees. Then we're going to release the $10 million to you. And so the old man had given something like seventy, eighty thousand $80,000. And his family wanted me to do an intervention with him. So I go and I talk to him. And, uh, and you know, I convince him that this is a fraud. He kind of buys into that. But then I explained to him that, listen, his phone number and his email address right now are toxic and are being sold on the black market right now uh, to bad guys uh, as part of a sucker list of people who, elderly people who have fallen for frauds, and it's not going to stop. So I sit down with him. We establish a new email address. We get emails out to his friend, his family and his close friends saying, this is my new email address. Don't use my old one. And we're shutting down the old email address. Take him to the Verizon store. 
we get a new phone number for him, right? The old phone number was is, is been compromised. The bad guys have that number. And, um, you know, and then we contact the family members. Okay, this is my new number. The old number's dead. Don't use it anymore. And that's going to stop the flow of calls to him because he's getting calls all the time. He's getting calls right. from people who say they're with the FBI and he needs to pay a fine to have the investigator. Yeah. And so, you know, he was addled, but, uh, but smart enough to kind of listen to me and I was able to help him out. A week later, the bad guys order a pizza to his house. Pizza delivery man gets to his house and says, hey, the guy who ordered the pizza from you wants to talk. Hands his cell phone to, uh, to the old man who gets on the phone. It's one of the bad guys. Hey, we've been trying to get a hold of you. We want to get you the money. You know, what's your, you know, I changed my phone number. What's your new number? And he gave up the new number and we had to start from scratch. These bad Those guys, motherfuckers. these bad guys overseas will not stop when they get a, they get a good fish on the hook. And they went so far as to order a pizza to this guy's house and have the pizza delivery man hand his phone over so they can talk to him and, and try to recompromise him. And we had to start from scratch. See like that. I just don't understand. I understand the method behind some criminals, like a, like a bank teller that steals cash from a bank mm -hmm. and then can turn around and justify it by saying it's okay. The bank screws people all the time. In 2008, they foreclosed on their house and blah, you know, all that. I understand the method behind that. I don't understand the method behind taking advantage of somebody so invasively. Yeah. The most vulnerable kind of person mm -hmm. there is at the end of their, like, I just, it just, that's something that I just cannot it's terrible. fathom. I cannot understand how somebody like who it's like, do you not have a mother and father? Do you not like have any empathy? They're soulless. I agree. So when I asked if people are sociopaths or just normal people, do you think that it's people that do those kind of crimes that are more on the psychopath, sociopath kind of? Yeah, but I think there's also a means by which you can dehumanize your targets if they come from an entirely different culture. If Got you it. come from a poor nation like India or Nigeria, and I'm not picking on those nations, but these yeah. things tend to arise from there. You're able to take a look at these rich Americans and yeah. maybe you're seething with anger and you don't like them and you have prejudices against them. And, you know, and you take a, and you take a look at some of the things that maybe they've done historically to your nation mm -hmm. and uh, that have, has impoverished your nation. And you're, they're rationalizing their own behavior because we talked about that earlier, how you rationalize it and how maybe this is their way of getting some reparations. Right. Got it. OK, so it's the same kind of concept. Exactly. Wow. Well, everybody, please go follow Simon Investigations. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. If you could leave one last positive message to our audience, what would that be? Bad guys aren't as bad as you think. When someone gets out of prison and they're trying to rebuild their lives, give them a second chance. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate you, so much you coming on. Me.